0: All right, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, I'm going to read the first 14 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are thankful for an opportunity to come this morning and to worship you and to open your word and hear from you. And we're thankful again for that light that shines into the darkness out of your tremendous mercy you sent Christ because you want to be known and you want men to be rescued. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd guide our time in your word, open our hearts to receive your truth, open the hearts of those who are here this morning that perhaps don't know you, and then for us who do know you, help our love for you to grow and increase as we see the tender mercy of you, our God, on display. And I pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Now, I do not want you to become troubled in heart thinking that I changed my mind, We're going to go back and start at the beginning since we finished our exposition of John's uh, gospel last uh, week. I'm not going to do that. But just because we finished our exposition of of John's gospel, it doesn't mean the book of John is completely off limits to me and for me to bring our attention to. And so I want to do that this very morning from this text, at least somewhat of a launching off point. And in fact, it's not going to be the only time I return to the book of John here in the near future. There's a portion out of the end of chapter 21 where the Lord is talking to Peter. You remember that? Uh, informs him that when he's old, verse 18, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Which I told you is Christ prophetically, uh, Christ's prophetic announcement that one day in the future when Peter uh, is an old man, Peter is going to die by way of martyrdom uh, via crucifixion. But then this, uh, chapter 21, verse 19 says this, now he said this signifying by what kind of death that he would glorify God. And when he had spoken, uh, he said to him, follow me. And that little phrase, by what kind of death he would glorify God, really caught my attention. And I gave a considerable amount of uh, time going back there this week. In fact, I spent an entire day this week uh, just thinking on that and reading through it. Because I, I, wanna, I want us to consider <clears throat> the fact that as believers, all of our life is to be <clears throat> lived glorifying God, even glorifying God in our death. By what kind of death he would, here it is, glorify God. H- have you ever considered uh, the fact that your death is an opportunity for you to glorify God? Now, I think it's important for us as believers to do that very thing, to consider that. So, sometime soon, I want to speak on the issue of what death means for the believer, and then, uh, because I fear sometimes we're too caught up into the thinking and the fear of the world concerning death. And we don't see that death is really an opportunity for us as a believer to glorify God in how we face death and what kind of confidence we have in this one whom we say we have followed all of our life and put our trust in for our eternal destinies. So as a believer, we shouldn't fear death, right? Because we know the one who literally has defeated death. We shouldn't fear death. Amen. I mean, this is the chapter previous, chapter 20. He just came out of the tomb. And we need to live according to the theology we say we profess and believe. So I think it's an important issue for us to consider. So Lord willing, we'll do it. Not next week, but in the the next few weeks, uh, again, uh, Lord willing. But for this morning, I'm going to turn our attention to the celebration of Christmas, uh, which is really the celebration of the incarnation of Christ, since we're just a week or so uh, away from uh, Christmas Day. Now, I realize that some believers uh, don't celebrate Christmas because of the pagan origins of, of the holiday and if they hold that conviction by uh, they hold that position by way of conviction that they probably shouldn't violate their conscience however i just want to say that paul i think gives us christian liberty to set that day aside if we choose uh, romans 14:8 or 14:5 says one man regards one day above another another regards every day alike let each man be fully convinced in his own mind he who observes the day observes it for the lord he who eats does so for the Lord, he who gives thanks uh, to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord does not uh, eat, uh, for the Lord he does not eat and and give uh, thanks to God. So is it wrong for a believer to celebrate Christmas? I think based on Paul's answer. Uh, from, from those verses the answer would be no I think Paul says look you can take any day you want you can set it aside a, a day even Christmas day and, and, and you can use that for the Lord just like everything in the Christian life it's not so, much, not so much a matter of what you do it's really the heart issue it's why you do what you do it's the heart attitude, and, and that's what I think Christ is concerned about, God is concerned about. So I think we have Christian liberty and freedom to celebrate uh, any day, to honor and glorify God in Christ. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. Spurgeon, you're probably at least familiar with the text, I would think, or the, the, the quote. He said this one time. He said, look, Christmas is here, and we might as well live with it and take the opportunity uh, to exalt Christ. And, and, and I couldn't agree uh, more. It, it's here. It, it's part of the culture in which we live. Therefore, we should seize the season for the glory of God. And, and because I really believe it's a t- at this time of the year that many men's hearts are a bit softer towards Christ. They, they may have imperfect thoughts of Him, uh, but we who know Him can testify to the truth concerning Him. And I think we should take every opportunity, especially... Always, but especially at this time of year, again, when I think men's hearts tend to be a little more open to the gospel, to, to witness to them of the saving grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ and give people a biblical understanding uh, of Christmas. So again, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take these verses again in John 1, and it really is somewhat of a launching off point to begin to speak about uh, the incarnation of Christ. And again, as I'm sitting down this week trying to consider what to bring to you this morning, Uh, Two phrases really caught my attention uh, out of that text. Uh, One was in verse 5 where it says the light shines in the darkness, the darkness doesn't comprehend it. And and the second one says, in the beginning uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. So just stop and consider those first three verses at the top of the of the chapter there. From our perspective, uh, we see it as a wonderful description of the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal one, the one who has called all things into being. And apart from him, nothing uh, would exist. But the truth is, the vast majority of the people in the world in which we live today uh, don't believe that. The vast majority of the people that live in the world today, they reject the word of God, and they have set themselves above God's word. So for the vast majority of the people around us that we deal with on a, on a daily basis, there is no in the beginning in their worldview or in their thinking. Because, again, the vast majority of people don't, in the world don't believe in God. The vast majority of people around us do not believe that God is the first cause of all things. The vast majority of people around us believe the lie of evolution, that everything exists by the product of nobody times nothing times time. That equals everything. And, and, and we and everything in this universe are nothing more than the result of some kind of a cosmic accident or random chance. I, I've said it to you a hundred times from the pulpit. If, if you believe, if you reject the truth, then all that you have left is what? A lie. I mean, we're, we look at the culture and go, man, it's kind of off the rails here. Well, go back to a fundamental issue that men have rejected the word of god and in the background for at least a hundred years or so or even longer now uh, the lie of evolution has been a foundational principle that the world works under there is no god right and and so that lie leads to another lie and another lie and another lie and and, and again because the the, satan is what he's the father of lies he's a murderer so men reject god And when men reject God, they reject the Word of God, they reject the Bible. And when God's Word is rejected, when there is no recognized, fixed, external, objective standard that everyone must submit themselves to and follow, then chaos and confusion ensue. And that's really the bottom line with all of the problems that are going on in the culture and around the world. I think they can all be traced back to the abandonment of the truth, the, 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 the rejection of the absolute standard of the Word of God. Because, again, when men reject the word of God, then each man becomes his own God. Right? When men reject the word of God, they say they're, they're bigger than, than God. They're outside of God. They know everything more than God knows, so there is no God, so they become their own God. When men reject the word of God, each becomes his own God. And then everybody does what they believe is right in their own eyes. Chaos, there therefore, ensues. There's a complete breakdown in society, and then judgment will follow. That, that's what's coming next. But the truth is, reality is, there is an objective standard. It's the Word of God. The truth is, God is the cause of all things. And the truth is, all men are accountable to Him. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Again, few people today believe that reality. Few people believe the truth of the existence and their accountability to God. Therefore, that will bring judgment. John 3, verse 19 says, this is the judgment. Here it is, that light has come in the world. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. So that, that's the practice of the unregenerate heart, the uh, the, the non a believer in God, the heart that has abandoned God's word as the standard—it's the problem of the culture. It's the problem in the entire human race, our culture, and around the world. Mankind's problem is darkness. And biblically, darkness is evil, moral evil. It's it's sin. It's rebellion. A dar- darkness really describes the the character and the life of the unbeliever. And that's where we were before Christ. We were in sin and, and, and darkness. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So again, unrepentant men don't want to come to the light. Uh, again, John 3 uh, verse 20 says, For everyone who does evil, does evil uh, sins in the, uh, evil sin in the light, and doesn't come uh, to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Men don't want to come to the light. They don't want to be revealed. And the unregenerate man lives in darkness. Therefore, because the unregenerate man lives in darkness, it affects every aspect of his life. He's unjust. Uh, wicked, corrupt, deceived, deceivers. Uh, they lie, they steal, they commit immor- immorality of all kinds, they murder, they commit every other kind of evil. That's mankind in sin. Prophet Isaiah gives a warning to these kind of people, to the world in which we live. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. That is the world in which we live today. And again, that's where we were apart from Christ. There's an interesting text in Ephesians 5 verse 8. It says, And you were formerly darkness. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. I think what's interesting about that verse, Ephesians 5 8, it, it, that verse doesn't say uh, we were in darkness. It, it just says we were darkness. You were formerly darkness. And again, that's who we once were, apart from Christ, darkness. Again, not only were we in the darkness, but the darkness was in us. Romans 1 verse 21 speaks to the unbeliever. says, their foolish heart was darkened. Ephesians 4.18, again of the unbeliever, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. The unbeliever is in darkness. Darkness is in the unbeliever. And the unbeliever in darkness is in a place where, again, they're ignorant to God himself. Uh, Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So the unbeliever who is in darkness is ignorant about God, ignorant about the truth. Uh, The unbeliever doesn't understand uh, the reality or the value of their own immortal soul. They are ignorant to that truth. That's why they live like they do. Like they do. So again, man in darkness has no understanding of the true meaning of life. No understanding what it means concerning the fact that God has appointed man once to die and then comes judgment. No understanding that every man, doesn't matter what you believe, my friends, one, one day the Bible says every man is going to stand and give an account before God. A personal account before God. And for those who reject the truth and those who continue in darkness in in sin and rebellion against God, the Bible says there's a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. As the Bible says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that the God of the Bible, the true and the living God, is a consuming fire. Man in darkness is ignorant about all that. Man in darkness is ignorant about his need of salvation, ignorant about the only way of salvation found through the person of Jesus Christ, ignorant about his life, the life of Christ, the work of Christ, the substitutionary death of the person of Jesus Christ. Man is in darkness, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Uh, Again, that's the world of men all around us in the day in which we live, in darkness. In darkness. Desperately in need of what? Light. This is the judgment. The light is come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light, but their deeds are evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But the great truth there in that verse is the light is come. The light is come. And God has made visible a way of escape. But again, men reject the truth. They reject the light because they love their sin. But men still are desperately in need of this light. Because light illumines. Light allows one to see reality. Uh, light um, uh, brings understanding. And, and the Bible says that Satan, who is the little g-god of this world and his kingdom, uh, it's called uh, in, in Colossians 1.13, uh, it's the, the domain of darkness. That's the kingdom of, of the prince of the power of the air. It's his kingdom of darkness. And men and sin are trapped in this kingdom of darkness, Satan's deception and, and lies. Uh, Ephesians six twelve says, "Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, uh, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places." So men and sin are trapped in Satan's kingdom of darkness, and they're desperately in need of being delivered, desperately in need of being rescued, and that's what God has done through Christ. That's exactly what God has done through Christ. And that's what the celebration of Christmas is all about. The fact that God has sent light. Because the nature of love is to express itself in giving. And giving itself away. And giving itself away for the benefit of others. That's the nature of love and that's the nature and the character of our God. And that's the nature and character of our God for this fallen world that is in rebellion against him. John three sixteen For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. That's the heart of God uh, for men in darkness. It's love. Again, based on His great pity, based on His great compassion and His mercy, He has revealed to men a way to escape the darkness, and he wants men to know that way. He wants men to know the light, and he wants men to know the person who is light, the one who will lead them out of the darkness. Now look down at verse 6 here, chapter 1 of John. It says, verse 6, it says, there came a man, here it is, sent from God, whose name was John. What a great statement, right? Not not just any man, not some man who just decides to come on his own initiative. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. And John's name means Jehovah is gracious, or Jehovah has been gracious, uh, the, the gift of God. That's tremendously interesting, I think, and uh, vital to the story, that you understand that for 400 years or so there's been no prophet in Israel. There's nobody who is a, God has been silent. But in the last book of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Malachi, God had given promise to send two messengers. Malachi three one says, "Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and uh, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming," says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So God has promised that he's going to send two messengers, uh, an an Elijah-like prophet who's going to go before uh, the Messiah. You, You see the same thing in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice calling clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness make smooth the desert highway for our God. So there came a man sent from God, whose name was John, verse 7 says, and he came for a witness that he might bear witness to the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. Now, of course, we know this to be John the Baptist, right? Uh, Luke chapter 1 confirms that. I read it just a a while ago. Uh, John the Baptist, he's, he's the forerunner. He's the one who God has sent. He's the one who's sent from God to clear the way, to bear witness of the light. So again, it's, it's confirmed by, by, uh, by an angel uh, to Zechariah. Go ahead and turn over uh, to, to Luke 1. Zechariah is a priest in Israel. Uh, he's a genuine believer. And he's going to be the supernatural father of John the Baptist, conceived outside the realm of what normal conception would happen by way of age. So Zechariah is performing his priestly duties. The angel comes and tells elderly Zechariah that he and his wife are going to bear a son. Luke chapter 1 verse 13 The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. In the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient uh, to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the son that is going to come, uh, this child whom God was going to again give, God's going to send, uh, he's going to announce the birth of the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah. So men's hearts uh, are prepared. God says this, sends this forerunner in advance. And again, with this child who um, Zacharias is holding in his arms, is none other; will grow up to be none other than uh, John the Baptist. Now, I, I said it earlier, but uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth are old. Probably in their 70s, maybe even to their 80s. Well past childbearing years. They never had children. Luke 1, verse 18, And Zacharias said of the angel, How? Shall I know this for certain, for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day in which these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. So just as the angel declares uh, Elizabeth conceives uh, again exactly as angel Gabriel said she would now when the time comes for Elizabeth to give birth uh, six months later or, or, or so uh, 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 or, or nine months after conceived obviously uh, God loosens his tongue loosens Zacharias's tongue and the Holy Spirit fills Zacharias and he praises God and, and worships God and and thanks him for his son John and this song of praise of Zechariah starts in verse 67, goes uh, uh, almost all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 79. But before that happens, before we read that, uh, there's uh, uh, six months into the pregnancy of of um, uh, Elizabeth, and the angel Gabriel comes again, but this time he comes to another woman, a young woman named Mary, who's a virgin. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, will have a child. Luke 1, verse 28 and coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you should call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now over in Matthew 1, you don't have to turn there, but the angel, the angel of the Lord comes and, and appears to Mary's betrothed, to, to uh, Joseph. Matthew 1, verse 20. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has con- been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that was spoken uh, by the Lord through uh, the prophet might be fulfilled, saying... Behold, the virgin will be a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, Zacharias is aware of all this interaction. He's aware of the fact that, again, he has a miraculously born son who's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. The Messiah, the one in whom all the hopes and dreams of the nation, the desires of the nation of Israel uh, have come Uh, or or placed in that they're looking forward to the coming of the messiah and and that's all about to be realized and he knows zacharias knows that the messiah is already being formed at this very moment in mary's womb for mary had been staying with elizabeth the last three months and and most certainly she must have told them of of, of all of these events in her interaction so now zacharias is overflowing with joy he's praising god He realizes that God is at work. He realizes that God is beginning to uh, bring forth, at least in part, uh, the fulfillment of his promises made both to Abraham and to David uh, for the salvation of his people. Now, sometimes uh, the section that I'm about to read is known as the Zechariah's Song of Salvation. Sometimes it's referred to as Zechariah's Benedictus. It's a tremendous, we've gone uh, portion of Scripture. We've gone through it in great detail before. Uh, we just can't do that this morning because of time. But it's just a tremendously encouraging portion of Scripture that points to the fact that when God speaks, He keeps His word. This is all a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, Zacharias is an Old Testament uh, scholar. He, he's aware of uh, 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 that he is now part of the most monumental event in redemptive history. He understands that the coming of the forerunner, the one sent from God, his son John the Baptist, is linked with the coming of the Messiah. And again, who's even now being formed in Mary's womb. He understands, listen, he understands that God is interfering in the affairs of mankind. God is interfering in the affairs of mankind. God is inaugurating the beginning of... Uh, To bring about at least the potential fulfillment of all of his promises and blessings that are again found in David in the Davidic and Abrahamic covenant. Again, covenants that were made with the nation of Israel, but have overflowing blessing to to the entire world, to the Gentiles of the world. And and listen to what Zacharias says uh, of his infant son John. Look down at verse 67, Luke 1, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. That's a a reference to the Davidic covenant out of uh, 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 23, Psalm 89, and partially out of Isaiah 9. Verse 20 or verse 70 as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Uh, um, uh, again, God had promised that he was going to send a deliver. God had promised that he'd send the Messiah, uh, one who would come all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, one who would come and, and crush the serpent's head, uh, one who would be, listen, the seed of the woman. And that phraseology is not used for for. For women. Uh, and this is somebody special, the seed of the woman. Uh, and, and the word old there from the mouth of the prophets of, an, of old, it's the word aon, and it really means forever, uh, per, uh, per, uh, perpetuity of time, eternity. So he's saying, look, there's a promise that has been made by God before the foundation of the world, literally from, from the, the point of eternity. Verse 71 salvation for our enemies and for the hand of those who hate us to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he would swore to Abraham, our father. Now it's a reference, obviously, to the, to the Abrahamic covenant. All men are in sin. All men are in rebellion against God. But Zacharias is praising God because he understands that the Savior is coming. God is fulfilling his promises. Zechariah rejoices because, listen, because God is in the process of sending mercy. Stop and think about that. God is in the process of sending mercy. He wants to show mercy to men. He wants to show mercy to our fathers. That's the heart of God. He's merciful. And that's also part of the meaning of Christmas. It's not about Santa Claus. It's about celebrating the, the God who's merciful. Now, Abram, or Abraham, Abram before he was called Abraham, Abram was living in Ur of the Chaldees. Abram was a pagan idolater. He was a moon worshiper. He wasn't looking for God. But yet God in his kindness came looking for Abram. Because that's the nature of God. That's the character of God. He loves men. He desires to seek and save the lost. He's a God of great mercy and great compassion and great grace towards undeserving people like us. And then the stream of mercy that began with Abram really begins at the fall, but the stream of mercy that began with Abram flows down the centuries and it provides forgiveness of sin, redemption, eternal blessing to all who have faith in God and all who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah whom he sent and that stream of mercy comes down to us this very day in this room verse seventy four says to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, so Zacharias is so confident in, in the word of God that God is going to do exactly what he promises to do. He speaks of this whole thing as already having taken place. He knows that his at the birth of his son John, again, that is signalling the fact that God is interfering. God is about to visit his people again, they're too old to have children, they have a child. God told them that they were going to have a child, and it happens exactly as the angel said. So provision for salvation is being made. It's made possible. So Zacharias is praising God. He's thanking God for his eternal rescue operation that he's brought into time. And and God promising to raise somebody up, somebody up uh, whom the forerunner, his son, will declare his coming. But somebody who will come from David's line, a a greater son, one who will have an everlasting kingdom. And, And again, that person is going to be none other than Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Verse 76. And you, child, again, he's looking at his child, his son John. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go be before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The tender mercy of our God. That's who God is. He's gracious. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's merciful. And listen, not towards people who have it, quote-unquote, altogether, But that's the way he deals with people who are in bondage to sin. That's the way he deals with people who are are oppressed by Satan. By those who are sit in darkness and are sitting in the shadow of death. Paul tells us this, Romans 5 verse 6. For while we will still help us at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us and while we were yet... Sinners. Christ dies. God's sending mercy before you get all cleaned up. Because you can't get cleaned up enough. He sends mercy to people who do not have it all together. He sends mercy to people who are desperate. Who are in bondage to sin. Who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which here it is, the sunrise from on high shall visit us. That's an old testament reference to the Messiah. You can read it out of Numbers twenty-four, verse seventeen, Isaiah eleven, eleven, Zechariah three, four, Zechariah six, twelve, Malachi four, two, and you can read the same kind of reference out of the New Testament, uh, Revelation twenty-two, sixteen. To give people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to guide our feet to the way of peace. That is the language of the New Covenant. That's Jeremiah thirty one thirty one. It's the language of the New Covenant. Because there's nothing in the Davidic covenant and nothing in the Abrahamic covenant that deals with the forgiveness of sin. It's only the new covenant that allows God to display his character of grace and mercy and compassion. It's only the, the new covenant that allows to, God to provide forgiveness of sin through the sunrise on high. Who will again visit those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and guide their feet to peace. Again, that's new covenant language. Now, of course, there, there's, a, there's a problem to all this. There's a barrier uh, to God desiring to bring blessing. It's called what? Sin. It's called sin. And the sin barrier is insurmountable by any human effort. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The world sits in darkness and in the shadow of death. In sin, under condemnation, awaiting judgment, desperately in need of peace desperately in need of life the world needs somebody who can come and stand in the gap between god's holiness and man's sinfulness the world desperately needs somebody who can come and actually inaugurate the new covenant and bring all of the blessings of the new covenant which again is primarily forgiveness of sin And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord, prepare His ways, and give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness, the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the way of peace. It's the sunrise from on high who stands in the gap. It's the sunrise on high from on high who gives God's people the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sin. And again, this one who's the sunrise from on high, it's the Messiah, the day spring. The sunrise from on high, or really the sunrise out of or from heaven. It's the Messiah who comes from heaven. And Jesus repeatedly said that he came from heaven as a great light to those who sit in darkness in this world. Listen, to end the darkness in the souls of men. That's why Christ came. To end the darkness in the souls of men. To bring them light and truth and salvation, the light of salvation. Prophet Isaiah speaks of him in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1. He says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun the land of Naphtali with contempt but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea the other side of the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles verse 2 of that chapter Isaiah 9 verse 2 the people who walk in darkness will see a great light and those who live in a dark land the light will shine upon them Isaiah goes on as he develops this. He, he gives a little more clarity to this one who is coming. Isaiah 9, verse 6. says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace, On the throne of his David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah speaks of him further, speaks of him again in chapter 42, uh, verse 1. Behold my servant, this is God speaking to the prophet. Behold my servant. "...whom I uphold, my chosen one, whom my my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick. He will not be extinguished. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth." Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. To open blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in the darkness from prisons. Verse 16 of uh, chapter 42, the book of Isaiah. I will lead the blind by the way they do not know and past they do not know. I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them, rugged places into a plain. These are the things which I will do. I will not leave them undone. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Again, the Lord speaking through the prophet says to the Messiah, I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 59, verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion. And those who turn from transgression And Jacob declares the Lord. He goes on speaking again the coming of this uh, uh, redeemer, uh, the light of, uh, of the world. Isaiah chapter verse 60 verse 1. Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you and the glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. He goes on and he actually talks about the millennial kingdom and he talks about eternity in the New Jerusalem, verse 19 of that passage. No longer will you have the sun for light by day and brightness, or, or, nor the brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will be set, your, your sun will set no more, neither will your moon uh, wane, for you will have the light of the Lord as an everlasting light. Days of your mourning will be finished. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planning, by this work of my hands, this I will be glorifying. Because of the tender mercy of God. Right? Because of the tender mercy of God, from which the sunrise on high is going to come and visit personally. And of course, the prophet has been speaking, Isaiah and the John, uh, Zechariah is speaking here of the tender mercy, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who now is in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the promised one, the child who will be born to us, the son given, and the government will rest on his shoulders and name will become called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. Again, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. God has a great, compassionate heart for mankind. He's promised to send one who will lead them to peace. A light to lead people to peace, to salvation, and to the person of peace, the Prince of Peace. And again, that's what Christmas is about. When you have a proper understanding of it. It's about this light that has come. It's about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who's a light into the world. Now go back to John chapter 1. That was just my introduction. So I could get back here to this text. So John opens his gospel, again, you understand, from all eternity. He's giving uh, a, a insight who he is. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Again, in the beginning was the Word, NRK. What, what does that mean in the beginning? Well, it's a reference back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. At the inception of creation, when creation came into existence, that's the beginning. And the Bible says there's one who stands before the beginning, he stands outside of time, a one who is eternal God, the one who created the heavens and the earth. Now, obviously, God is not created, not a created being, because he's the creator of all things, he's the origin, the source, the uncreated one. Eternally pre existent. And that's the identity that John the Baptist, or John the, the Gospel writer here, begins to unfold concerning the person of, of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the one before creation. Jesus was the preexistent one, he is the one who's before all things. Now, again, all the other Gospel accounts begin uh, with. Uh, Uh, The birth, the life, uh, those kind of things in time of the person of Jesus Christ. But here again, John goes way back before creation. Way back before time began. So we have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. Back beyond creation. Back to eternity past. That's where Christ was. And at the point that everything came into existence, Christ is beyond that. Right? He was already there. He already was. The word already existed. Again, the word is before time. The word is eternal. So again, John is working hard to uh, provide defining proof of the deity of Jesus Christ, for only God is eternal. In the beginning was the word, and me is is that little word was. It's an imperfect um, tense of the verb to be. So what he's really describing is continual action. Uh, Again, reinforcing uh, preexistence of this one. In the beginning was, always was, always will, always existed is the Word. He's the one who has existence before the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's prostantheon. It literally means was with God. Prostantheon literally means face-to-face with God. So when John says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, he's really giving a picture of this eternal person or eternal beings face-to-face with one another, in interaction they're having intelligent discourse, a deep, intimate fellowship. The the word, the preposition pros, p o p r o s, and transliterated, it speaks of motion towards. It's not just. Uh, uh, it's in the. It's used in the context of a relationship, intercourse, dialogue, face to face. So he's saying, look, the, the the word is not some emanation from God, but rather He is the same essence of the Father. John's saying, look, from all eternity, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was with the Father. The Word was, was the Word, and the Word was with God. Again, prostantheon. It's a very important affirmation of Christ's separate personality from the Father. It's a Trinitarian affirmation. One God, yet three persons. Two of them in this one verse together. The Word also was with God, God the Father, and the Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And again, the only way that you can understand the God of the Bible properly is with a Trinitarian explanation. As the Bible teaches that there's one eternal God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, and he's only one God. there's only one God exists, yet within the nature of the one God, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. But they're all distinguishable. They're all distinct from one another. These three persons, three distinct persons, one God. Everything that is true about one is true about the other. Everything that is true about the Father is true about the Son. And everything that is true about the Son is true about the Father. And, and everything that is true about the Holy Spirit is both true of the Father and the Son. Now, or one of the Pentecostals come along... And they say, well, no, there's no Trinity. There's just one God, and sometimes he puts on the Father mask and acts like the Father, and sometimes he puts on the Son costume and acts like the Son, and sometimes he puts on the Holy Spirit costume and acts like the Holy Spirit. That's modalism, and that's a heresy. It's not the same God of the Bible. And there's a lot of people even today, unfortunately, who teach and believe in modalism. So at the beginning of creation, John wants us to understand that the Word was already in existence. In fact, he's going to tell us that the eternal Word is the creator of all things. Verse three: all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being <clears throat> that has come into being. It's again an affirmation that the Word existed before the creation. so John is making it clear that the Word is not a created being; it was not created. It's of us utmost importance that we understand that truth in the beginning, eternally continually was the word. And, and again, John could have used another word altogether. He could have used genemi, which means became, but he didn't use that word. He used me. He's just pointing out not that the, the, the word became, but the word was. In the beginning was, always was, from eternity was. There's never a point back further in eternity that he never existed because he always existed. Time and time came into existence as we understand it, at, at creation. Right? We, we're, we're trapped in time. God is an eternal being. So time came into existence at creation. Time began with day one, right? Day one, day two, day three, and all that kind of stuff, etc and so forth. Time began at the moment of creation. World created, started to spin, light and dark, cycles, etc and so forth. But he's saying again, there's one who stands outside of time, one who's eternal. Again, he's making a tremendous argument for the preexistence of the person of Jesus Christ. And if he's making the argument for the preexistence of the person of Jesus Christ, he's making a clear claim that Jesus is God. Because no one's eternal except God himself. How many times did we see that thing when we worked our way through the gospel of John? John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day... He, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is on behalf of the one whom said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I. Listen to these words. For he existed before me. Although John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. Here's the one who existed before me. John 3 and 30. John the Baptist speaking about Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth is from the earth and, I, and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. John 6 and 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. <clears throat> John six forty-eight. 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51 of that chapter, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Anyone who eats this bread shall live forever. John 16, 20, uh, 28, I came forth from the Father. I have come into this world. I am leaving the world and going to my Father again. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you, they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, and I've accomplished the work that you have given to me, and now glorify me together with uh, yourself, Father, with the glory, here it is, which I had with you before the world was. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God in the beginning, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him. Apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, John uses the word life about 30 times in his gospel, more than any other New Testament writer. He uh, uses related verbs to live uh, additionally about 15 times, so he's really into that understanding, or for us to understand that Jesus is the one who has both life and light and life and light are prominent themes in the Gospel of John. John fourteen six, Christ claims to be that source of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In John chapter six, or John chapter five, verse forty, Christ says, However, of rebellious men they won't come to the light. John five, forty, You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. They, don't, they won't come to the one who's light. one will come to the one who's life. You're unwilling to come to me. John 10, verse 28, Jesus said to those who do come, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Back a few uh, verses earlier, John 10 and 10, the thief only comes to kill, to steal, to destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So I guess the question would be, now, what does life mean? It's the word zoe in the Greek. It has a couple different meanings. In him was life. In him was life means, again, Jesus is the creator. He's the, he, he's the source of life, uh, physical life. All things came into being, verse 3, all things came into being by him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. Uh, again, physical life comes from God. And it comes actually from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, our physical life comes to us from Christ. He's the source of that life. And again, it points back to the fact that, again, He is the creator. He's the source of everything and everyone who lives. However, as the Gospel of John unfolds, that word life kind of takes on a little bit of different meaning. He's not just speaking about life but uh, in Christ's role in creation, but he to increasingly speak about the need of spiritual life. It points to the fact that Jesus is not only the source of our physical life, but he's the source of our spiritual life. That would be we who repent and believe upon him. And the life that God gives us through Christ, again, is not merely earthly, but it's eternal. And the one who has eternal life, Christ says, you can never be lost. It's abundant life, even in the midst of circumstances in a fallen world. I've told you many times that eternal life is not just uh, Quantity is is in length. But eternal life in the Bible really means qualitative different. A qualitative change. Just like the difference from going from death to life. A qualitative change. Because that's exactly where we were apart from Christ on a spiritual level. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. We were darkness. And the Bible says although we were dead in trespasses and sins by nature, object of God's wrath as everyone else in this fallen world Because of God's great love for us, because of his rich mercy, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace he has saved us and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies, as it says in Ephesians 2. Men in sin need life. And we find life again alone in the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ we're alive. And John wants us to know that. John wants us to know that That Christ is offering instead of living miserable lives in a fallen world as we do apart from God and apart from Christ, always complaining, always struggling. There's new life available for men who repent and place their faith in Him. There's new life, joyful life, full exuberant life, hope, peace, blessing. Even in the midst of the difficulties of living in a fallen world. That, that's the abundant life that Christ offers to men. That, that's the kind of life that, that Christ offers to men who would believe. So, again, when Christ says phrases like, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, Look, I'm the only one who can satisfy your hunger. I'm it. When he says he's the water of life, or it just means he quits our, our deepest thirsts. In him was life continually, eternally, life. It's interesting that there are three uh, major illustrations in in the uh, gospel accounts that show that life that was always in Christ evident in Him was life. Over in Mark chapter 5 verse 22 it was the daughter of Jairus. uh, She was 12 years old. She'd uh, been dead. She died. She was only dead a few minutes when the Lord reached her in her father's house, but she was dead, lifeless. Perhaps still fair to look at because the corruption hadn't taken place, but she's dead. And Jesus compassionately takes the hand of this young girl and speaks to her and tells her arise. She does that very thing. Over in Luke seven verse eleven. Jesus comes to a village called Nain, and their people were carrying a young man. They were taking him on his way out to bury him. Uh, he'd been dead just a day or so. And uh, Again, the young man's dead longer than the girl, but nevertheless, he's dead. His life was extinguished. But Jesus sees the mother in great mourning and has compassion for the mother, and he touches the coffin that the young man is in and says, Young man arise. The dead man sits up. And then of course you go over to Luke or to John chapter eleven, the story of Lazarus. He's been dead for four days in the grave. The sisters warn the Lord not to roll away the stone because the stench is going to be too much. The corruption had reached the point that it would have been offensive. And Jesus again, out of a heart of compassion, Calls to Lazarus, come forth. And he does that very thing. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that brings life to all these individuals. From the most corrupt, Lazarus, down to the little girl, but still all dead. Still all in various stages of corruption. All dead apart from the compassionate, life-giving spirit of the person of Jesus Christ. And again that's where we're all at that's where all men are apart from Christ dead spiritually sitting in darkness in the shadow of death desperately in need of being guided to the way of peace the person of peace in need of divine life that only comes from the one who is divine life that's Christ himself in him was life eternally continually and that's why the father sent Christ out of his tremendous love his tremendous mercy He sent Christ to lead us to life and to light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now the question would be, what does that mean? James Boyce has an answer to the question. It's helpful. Uh, He says that uh, when John declares that Jesus Christ is the light of men, he says by this title, Jesus is uh, revealed as the one who knows God the Father and who makes him known. He says light is a universal image for illumination of the mind uh, through uh, uh, understanding. Before Christ came into the world, the world was in darkness. The world did not know God. Christ came. His light shone before men, and men had the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The context, he says, for the significance of this uh, image uh, lies in the fact that God is pictured as light throughout the entire Old Testament and in the New Testament. David writes in Psalm 27.1, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 36.9, For with you there is a fountain of life in your light I see. He says that's the perfect image of Christ. How appropriate it is a term for him to use, the one who makes the eternal Father known, the one who is both light and life. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Again, light brings illumination. Light allows us to see, to understand. Light offers to men hope. Jesus said John 8:12, "I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life." John 12:46, "I have come as a light to the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness." Concerning the gospel, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 3. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ is the image of God. In him was light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, these two words are equal, the way that the writer uses them. Comparing this one who has both of these things uh, incarnate, the, both of these things um, in, in his character, the one who showed shines into the darkness, the one who reveals uh, men God to men, so that men would not have to remain in darkness. He says, "In him was life; the light was the light of men." Verse five says, "And the light shines in the darkness, and darkness doesn't comprehend it." It's interesting; it probably doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness doesn't comprehend. catalambano is the word. It just It's kind of a word that can have two meanings. Like if I was to use the word grasp, what do I mean when I use the word grasp? It could mean that I grasp something intellectually, I have understanding mentally. Or it could mean that I actually take hold of something on a physical level. I master it. And Catalambano kind of has that same kind of word to lay ho- uh, idea, lay hold of, make one's own or appropriate so So the word really could mean uh, uh, overcome and, and 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 that's probably more uh, the idea the ESV says the light shines in the darkness, the darkness is not overcome it, or, or the darkness is not mastered. It, it says in the New English translation. So if you take that kind of understanding of the word, the light has come into the world, or the light has come into the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. What he's saying is basically that the light of Jesus Christ continues to shine into the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. And the darkness can't can't, uh, overcome him. 1 John 2, 8. It says, since Christ came into the world, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is shining. Again, darkness is Satan's kingdom. Uh, his evil forces of darkness uh, uh, understand that they understand the truth very well of who Jesus is. Over and over again in the New Testament, you see interactions between Christ and, and demonic forces. And they're in absolute what? Abject terror of him. Because they know who he is. They know he's the son of God. They know he's the holy one. And they're in absolute terror and fear. So he's saying the light shines in the darkness. The darkness doesn't comprehend it or or has not uh, overcome it. Uh, The light of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ will never be overcome by Satan and his kingdom. Again, they clearly understand who Jesus is. They clearly understand the judgment that awaits them. And that's why, throughout all of history, they have tried desperately to stop him. They've tried desperately to destroy the one who comes as the light. They've tried to extinguish the entire nation, right? Satan has, and his kingdom have tried to destroy the entire nation of Israel because from the nation of Israel comes the seed, the Messiah, the light of the world. They tried to. Satan and his forces tried to destroy uh, the Christ when he came at his birth, uh, killing all all the newborn male children, two years and younger. Uh, This kingdom of darkness is trying to block out the kingdom of light, but it'll never overcome it. It's all futile. And towards the end of... uh, Christ's earthly ministry, uh, then he puts into the uh, mind of Peter, maybe we will try to keep you from the cross because perhaps now a little bit of clarity of understanding has come that Satan and his kingdom of darkness isn't a whole lot of trouble. God forbid that you should go to the cross, and and Jesus says to Peter, What? Get behind me, Satan. There's an eternal battle that's going on, and again, the light. Is not going to be overwhelmed by the darkness. The darkness is going to comprehend. The darkness is going to uh, continue to go forward and and conquer. John Phillips, in his paraphrase, says it like this The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never put it out. And it will never put it out. Drop down in verse 9. There's a true light which comes into the world. Then enlightens every man. True, uh, a lathos, a uh, spe- specifically true light. Again, remember Zechariah's statement uh, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. Because of God's mercy, he sends the true light because he wants men to know him he wants men to find peace he wants men to be reconciled he wants men to come out of the domain of darkness come to the marvelous light of his savior the lord jesus christ because he doesn't want men to perish he wants men to know peace objective subjective peace personal peace the prince of peace his dear son the lord jesus christ There's no other way to find peace. Whatever your personal issue is and however you're struggling in life, you'll never find peace subjectively until you know peace objectively through God's Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Again, John says, "There was a true light that comes into the world that enlightens every man, every man. Uh, There's a true light that comes, and, and God has made way possible and open and visible of rescue. The glory of Christ is available for all to see. But sadly and unbelievably, look what it says next. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who are not those who were his own did not receive him. The only reason not to come to Christ is volitional. It means your will. Your willfulness, your rebellion. And the reason that men don't come to Christ, the reason the men don't believe in Christ, is not because of lack of evidence. The reason men don't come is because they refuse to come. They refuse to believe. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There's no excuse for spiritual blindness because God has sent the light. Desires men to come. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. He was in the world, the world was made through him, the world did not know him, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as believed, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Here it is, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Son, only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what Christmas is about. The incarnation of the one who is light, the incarnation of the one who has life, sent into the world by the Father out of his tremendous love. And the Son comes out of His tremendous love for this fallen world, this rebellious world that sits in darkness in the shadow of death and who will execute Him. But He comes because God is a God of great mercy. He comes because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have a great love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. So God bids you this day come. Receive the offer of mercy, forgiveness of sin. Receive new life that God desires for you to have in Christ. And that reconciled relationship, that life that God desires for you to have, to be a personal recipient of, now brings you into the Father's family. You're now forever taken out of the category of enemies and strangers and aliens. You're brought into the Father's house And the Bible says the most wonderful, great, good news that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He bids you come. Come from darkness. Come to life. Come from darkness. Come to light. Come from death. Come to light. Because Jesus Christ is the light that God sends to mankind. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this look at the one whom you promised to send from the Old Testament, really from eternity past, because of your great love for rebellious men and women like us, because your compassion and your mercy is greater than our rebellion. And we're thankful for the truth of the word that has brought us out of darkness into light. I pray you'd use your word to encourage the hearts of your people and challenge those who do not know the Savior this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.